When tossed into the air, is a penny more likely to land tails up or heads up? And how did the witch really die in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Well, answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, whenever you have a bet, a lot of people like to throw a coin into the air. So the question is, when tossed into the air, is a penny more likely to land tails up or heads up? Well, 50-50 chance, right? Uh, But percentages will go with the tails. Well, actually, you're right, but why tails? I don't know, because it sounded counterintuitive. It's a close call when you flip that coin and catch it in your hands. It could be heads or tails, but the odds are a tiny bit higher, 1% higher, that the Lincoln penny will land tails up. Why? Why? Because the side with the head... (gasps) Is a little heavier. A little bit heavier. Of course. So it's slightly more likely to end up on the bottom of the coin. Gosh. Just 1% more. But slightly, a chance. Any coin? This is the Lincoln penny we're talking about. The Lincoln penny. Yeah. So the odds are 51 to 49%. I'll be darned. Now, if you spin a Lincoln penny on its edge rather than toss it, that changes the odds dramatically. How? Well, then it's more likely to land on heads because it's slightly lighter, and that will fall on the head side up. You're absolutely wrong. (laughs) But I sounded so confident. (laughs) When spinning a Lincoln penny on its edge, the penny will land tail side up 80% of the time. 80? This comes from Percy Deaconis, a statistician at Stanford University and also a former magician. He performed a study with Susan Holmes of Stanford and Richard Montgomery of USC, and they found 8 out of 10 times a spinning coin tends to fall toward the heavier side. Again, that's because the Lincoln head's head is a little heavier than the other side. But those are the odds. So tossing a penny, 51 to 49, it'll land on its tails. Spinning a penny, 81 to 10% it lands tails. Oh, thank you, Bob, for that enlightening (laughs) information. Well, you always come up with little gambling things. And I thought, (laughs) why not? Let's bring up the penny and talk about that. I love gambling, sports, lobster. (laughs) Okay, in the Disney classic... Snow White and the Seven Little Guys. The script writers had the Wicked Queen falling off a precipice to her death. If you remember the movie, that's how she died. No, I didn't remember that. And she dies. But how did she really die in the original Grimm Brothers fairy tale? She ate her own poison apple. Oh. No, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's a good one. Make her eat the apple. Eat her own apple. I'm eating apple right now. Oh, (laughs) Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel bad (gasps) about that. Well, those Grimm brothers, they were pretty gruesome back in the day. Yes, they were. But Mm -hmm. in the original fairy tale, the queen was condemned to dance in red hot iron shoes until she died. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, my. What a way to go. Dance in red hot iron shoes? Yeah. Until she died. I never heard that part of the story. Talk about Grimm. <laughs> and those guys, basically, the brothers Grimm were folklorists. They went out and collected all these folk tales yeah, and but, put them in a book. And they were all very, very uh, Misogynistic, foolish. too. Yeah. Women did not come out well in these tales. <laughs> that just reflected society, I think. I guess. 
All right, I'm going to go back to the Lincoln Penny, Marsh, because i got a couple more questions on currency here, all right? All righty. What is unusual about Lincoln's image on the penny? What is unusual about Lincoln's image on the penny? Uh, it's facing like in a mirror. It's one of the few currently minted U.S. coins where the profile faces right. Generally, they face left. Okay, what body features, Bob, do the iguanas, koalas, and Komodo dragons all have in common? They have tattoos. <laughs> what? I don't know. What I does just, that mean? I was just trying to think of something different. So what body features do the iguanas, the Komodo dragons, and what else? Koalas. Koalas all have in common? Yes, they have a body feature that's different than most. Than most other animals? Yeah, or people. I don't know. <laughs> they have two penises. Oh, <laughs> of course I would know that. Yeah, of course. Uh, yes. Oh. It's not uncommon in reptiles like snakes and lizards either. It has something to do with the evolutionary cycle, Bob, but uh, that's what they all have in common. Why not have two when one just won't do? <laughs> I... Hey, now, there's a slogan. See? Advertising <laughs> runs in the blood. Okay. Oh, my God. I've well, never heard of that. Well, that's why I'm here to share oh. these amazing but true stories. Okay, Marcia, um, I'm going to ask you an architecture question, okay? What ancient city was designed to be earthquake-proof? Now, let me give you a hint. This city had a feature in the architecture that the uh, people who, the Europeans who discovered it back at the turn of the 20th century thought, well, that's really unusual. But nobody put two and two together. But now scientists believe this was this city was actually designed to be earthquake. Well, was it in China? No. Was it in South America? Yes, it was. Was it in Peru? Yes, it was. And was it Machu Picchu? Yes, Machu Picchu. <laughs> now that's Peru is located in a seismic zone. Yeah. And uh, apparently, to protect against potential earthquakes, the Incas made those buildings. With precisely fit stones. They're held together with gravity alone. Yeah, There's no isn't mortar. That Remember, they always said, Isn't that strange? There's no mortar holding these bricks yeah. together. It is so tight, nothing so thin as a credit card could be inserted in the cracks. That's amazing. So, what they think this did was they designed this to let these mortar free stones dance during an earthquake, only to resettle back into place once it ended. That's how advanced they were. And we think we're so smart today. Yeah, so smarty pants. <laughs> I know, isn't that amazing? So to me, finally, that makes sense why they didn't use mortar. So that's what they think now. Okay, I have another coin fact, Marcia. Well, how about two penises? <laughs> I know the two penis question is so fascinating, <laughs> but I've gone back to coins because I just can't explain that one, all right? All right, so we talked about the presidents and how Lincoln faces right on the coin, on the, on the penny. What president originally faced Left, then right, and now faces forward oh, for on God's his sakes. coin. Okay, who's who's facing? Left, then right, and now faces forward on his coin. I don't know. Oh, come on. Give me a president. <laughs> Give you a president on a coin. I'm trying to think of, uh, you're right, I haven't looked at a coin lately. Ah, oh, the buffalo. Oh, yeah, President <laughs> Buffalo, of course. <laughs> tell me, Bob. He was a woolly guy, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, tell me. President Thomas Jefferson. He was both ways and then front. Yeah, huh? when the Jefferson nickel was introduced in 1938, he faced left. In 2005, that nickel was redesigned for the Louisiana Purchase. He faced right. Now he faces forward, looking forward to you as oh. a coin holder okay. since 2006. Okay. That nickel was the first U.S. coin that didn't show a president in profile. Fascinating. Fascinating, Fascinating. Marcia. But if the population of China... Begin walking past you, Bob, in single file. Oh, dear. 
How long would it take to get to the end? <laughs> that would take centuries, I think, wouldn't it? Centuries? Actually, it would never end because of the rate of reproduction. Oh, dear. <laughs> it oh, would just a... keep going forever. <laughs> so it would take forever. Yeah, it would never end. Hmm. Sort of like your last question. Like... <laughs> Notice I'm the only one laughing. Okay. All right, Miss Smarty Pants. <laughs> Let's say you want to take a trip. Yeah. And you want to drive down a coast, okay? okay. What is the longest coastal driving route in the world? In How the... many miles? And where is it? Well. This is okay. a surprise. Is it? Yeah. Okay, so is it in the United States? It's not in the United States, Marsha, <laughs> wherever that is. You... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not in the USA. <laughs> You say United, I say United. United, yeah, no. <laughs> would it be someplace like Russia or China? You'd think it would be something like that, but, but no. But it's not? not no. no. Okay, shall we go to South America? No, let's not. All right, how about Australia? No. Okay, how about... Uh, this would be a big surprise. Burbank. No. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so the question is, what is the longest coastal driving route in the world? Okay. You were thinking the Pacific Coast Highway. Yeah. Because we it, went it, down that. Yeah. yeah, from uh, Oregon all seemed the way like down. It seemed like forever. It yeah. did seem like forever. <laughs> but this is called the Wild Atlantic Way. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. I hadn't either. Where do you think the Wild Atlantic Way is? I don't know. Paul. Oh, that's right. That's the point. You didn't know. <laughs> it's on the western side of Ireland, believe it or not. Oh. The island of oh, Ireland. Oh, lad. And it's 1,600 miles long, connecting Derry in Northern Ireland with Cork in the south. Takes three weeks to do this. No kid To drive it? Yeah, and it's broken into three 14 weeks. stages. They allow you limited time to pick and complete the portion you want to see it the most. And among the highlights are quaint villages, historic castles, natural landmarks like the Cliffs of Moher, and uninterrupted coastal views. So 1,600 miles, that's huge. The Pacific Coast Highway in California is 656 miles. Is that right? Yeah. I thought, well, how is it, long is it from the top of California to the bottom? Well, you and I drove from Portland Oregon to Los Angeles in 2010. That was 963 okay. miles. Right. Much of it via Interstate 5, but you're not able to see the ocean the whole way. You are able to see the ocean the whole, whole way, way on this 1,600-mile wow. route. Wow. That's but the why difference. does it take so long? Well, yeah. you're not going 90 miles an hour. It's probably oh, two yeah. lanes okay, most of the Okay, you're going way. through little villages. Yeah, you're going through little okay. towns. All right, that makes sense. <laughs> so the answer again is the longest coastal driving route in the world is, of all places, in Ireland, the Wild Atlantic Way, 1,600 miles. All right, Bob, in Abu Dhabi. I just like to say that, Abu Dhabi. <laughs> How do jockeys stay on their mounts when they're in camel races? Oh, God, I never thought of a camel race. I was thinking, of, oh, they probably have big horse races over there. <laughs> How do jockeys stay on their camels? Yeah. Well, isn't that just like a saddle, like normal saddles you have to be on? Apparently not. Okay. Some kinds of harness or strap that's attaching them to this They camel? are strapped in with Velcro. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they have it on the bottom of their clothes and then on the mount thing, but they're in there securely with Velcro. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a good one. I've got a famous artist question. Uh-huh. What famous artist wrote a poem about how much he hated working on one of his greatest creations? What famous artist wrote a poem uh, about... I'll say Da Vinci and the Mona Lisa. No, it wasn't Da Vinci and the Mona Lisa. It was from that era. Uh-huh. 
Think of somebody who was in a situation that was unusual. He had to paint things. The ceiling? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Michelangelo. Back, laying on his back, painting a ceiling. ceiling. Well, that would get tedious, that's for sure. The other clue is it was 500 years ago, but you got it. It was Michelangelo, and he wrote a poem about how much he hated painting the Sistine Chapel. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I didn't either. He did that on his back, on a scaffold, and it took months and months and months. Here's a little bit of a translation of a poem he sent to a friend. Really? This is Michelangelo to Giovanni de Pistoria. Oh, I love that. When he was painting the Sistine Chapel, 1509. Okay. I've already grown a goiter from this torture, (laughs) hunched up here like a cat in Lombardy, or anywhere else where the stagnant water is poison, my stomach's squashed under my chin, my beard's pointing at heaven, my brain's crushed in a casket, my breast twists like a harpy's, my brush above me all the time dribbles paint so my face makes a fine floor for droppings. Wow. (laughs) Mike was cranky. Not done yet. My haunches are grinding into my guts, my poor ass strains to work as a counterweight, every gesture I make is blind and aimless, My skin hangs loose below me. My spine's all knotted from folding over itself. I'm bent taut as a Syrian bow. Because I'm stuck like this, my thoughts are crazy, perfidious, tripe. Anyone shoots badly through a crooked blowpipe. My painting is dead. Defend it for me, Giovanni. Protect my honor. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter. He thought of himself more as a sculptor, you know? Yes, he did David and a few things before that. Months and months laying on your back on a scaffold, which any of us would think that would drive me nuts. Apparently, it was driving him nuts. And not only that, he's a good writer. I mean, that is amazing (laughs) imagery there, right? Isn't that amazing? That was from 1509, translated, of course, but it was uh, in the form of a poem. That is angry, yeah. Very angry. Yeah. All right, we'll cool off now and come back with more. Uh, You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. All right, we're back after a break. Bob and Marsha Smith with The Off-Ramp. Marsha, what is your next question? Well, Napoleon, Bob. Napoleon offered a prize during the Revolution for a practical way of preserving food for his armies. Oh, I've heard about this. The winner was a French inventor, Nicolas Apur. What did he devise? He invented the tin can. <laughs> Canned meat, I think it was a can that they would put provisions in for the army when they were going places. So it basically canned food. That's exactly right. Canning. He invented the method of preserving food by enclosing it in hermetically sealed containers. Epper is considered the father of canning. And that was the beginning of the canned food industry we have today. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it came out of Napoleon offering money for a scientific invention. It was like 30, it was a lot of money he offered, like uh, 35,000 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so he could have his provisions for his army wherever he went. Yeah. The food could follow them. Which was good thinking on his part. And he offered some serious coin for someone to think it through. Very interesting, huh? So that goes back to the 1790s, probably, or early 1800s. I got a quickie for you. Sure. What is the only letter in the alphabet with more than one syllable? The only letter in the alphabet with more than one syllable? Uh Uh-huh, quick. W. That's it. How did you get that so <laughs> I fast? I was just thinking, W, it's got to be W. I would have had to go through A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Good for you. And how many syllables is that? Three. All right, now we have a question about an American city. I'm going to give you four cities. Tell me which one was named after an ancient Egyptian capital. Okay? Helena, Montana, Memphis, Tennessee, 
Omaha, Nebraska, and Tucson, Arizona. Which one was named after an ancient Egyptian capital? Helena? Memphis. Memphis was a prominent location on the Nile River Delta, and, of course, Memphis is on the Mississippi, which is considered the American Nile. All right. Yeah. Okay. Bob, do astronauts get taller, shorter, or stay the same when they're in space? They get shorter. No, wait a minute. When they're in space, they may be taller because there's no gravity, so you would expand. There we go. Answer, taller. (laughs) That is correct. Okay. They can grow up to 3% taller, so a six-foot guy can be six-foot-two while he's up there. Wow. Yeah. They're living in microgravity, according to NASA, and they don't return to normal until a couple months after they're back on Earth. All right. Another ancient civilization question, okay? In what was once ancient Iran, you will find giant, bizarre, beehive-like structures, buildings, okay? Okay. What were they used for in ancient Persia? And I'll give you a hint, not for religious rituals or royal residences or defense purposes. Were they built like that to act like chimneys, to uh, have fires in them at night when it got cold? Okay, that would be a good guess, but no, these are rounded, they're like domed-like. Yeah, without a hole in the top. Yeah, without a hole in the top. Okay, I don't know. Okay, they're called jackshals. Y-A-K-H-C-H-A-L-S. They appear like clay beehives, but you know what they were? They were used by the ancient Persians as evaporation coolers so they could make and collect ice during the colder months and store it in the desert throughout the year to preserve food long before electricity. Are you kidding? Yeah, they They were. They kept the ice? They kept ice in these structures. And they stayed in the desert? Yeah, in ancient times they built this. Isn't that fascinating? You, the ice would melt in our house. It must be incredibly thermally... Insulated. Yeah. Exactly. Holy They're like God. ice warehouses. They're made of clay. Thousands of years old. They were introduced around 400 BC. Who knew, right? All right, Bob. Real pearls will not burn in a fire. Mine just go down to dust. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens to them if you put them in vinegar? Well, they dissolve, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, there it goes. Yes. A pearl is 89 to 90% calcium carbonate, oh. and vinegar is mostly acetic acid, so they just start to dissolve. Not completely, but they just deteriorate majorly. See, I think a lot of people think, well, there's a, it's a pearl, there's a stone or something there, and this, this is something built around it. Why would it dissolve? Yeah. But it does. Yeah. Huh. Okay, Marsha, uh, advertising question here, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, we all know the jolly green giant, right? Ho, 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 green giant. Well, Very good, Bob. He was introduced years ago uh, in the 20s. Ten years after he was introduced, the green giant wasn't catching on. Why? He wasn't wearing a skirt yet. Well, he wasn't green and he wasn't jolly. <laughs> <laughs> he was an angry, an angry giant. An, an angry nobody, giant. Nobody wants an angry giant on their pecan. I don't think he was angry, but it was like threatening, like, uh-huh. oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> when he was first adopted by the Minnesota Valley Canning Company, the mascot was a giant man wearing a bear skin and carrying a club. Finally, in 1935, the assignment was turned over to ad man Leo Burnett, who was 43 at the time. Yeah. He colored the giant green, put a smile on his face, mm-hmm. and dressed him in leaves. <laughs> <laughs> the jolly green giant caught on, and Leo Burnett went on to form his own advertising agency. But that's the reason for 10 years the giant wasn't catching on for this company gets, as a mascot. He wasn't jolly, and he wasn't green. Isn't that, uh, isn't that interesting? Just basic, uh, oh, I don't know. Advertising 101, make it appealing. You yeah. Know? 
and uh, put leaves on him. I thought it was a skirt, but okay, leaves. <laughs> Make him happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Not a threatening giant. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Just out of curiosity, Bob, mm-hmm. how many of the seven deadly sins can you name? The seven deadly sins. Yeah. yeah. Where does this come from, the that seven deadly cr- sins? Christian theology. Okay. So the seven deadly sins. Okay, I'm just going to give you a few uh-huh. that I have. <laughs> Jealousy. Are they crimes of passion, like killing? Would it be murder? Is no, it, no. But they're kind of all psychological things, aren't they? The yeah, seven they're, deadly they're sins? bad traits. Okay, so anger. No. Well, I don't know, Marsha. I've given you anger. I've given you murder. I've given you jealousy. Those are the big three. All right. <laughs> Avarice. That's being greedy. That's right. Envy. Mm-hmm. Gluttony. Eating too much. Lust. Oh, that's a good one. Pride. <laughs> pride. Uh, pride before the fall. Sloth. Sloth. I, you called me that once. I did. And <laughs> wrath. Wow. So, so those are the seven. Once again, they are what? Avarice, envy, gluttony, lust, pride, sloth, and wrath. Wow. That's originating in, I think the Catholics came up with that to keep keep people in place here. It was population control, <laughs> I think. It was population. That's what it always amounts and, and, to. And just so you know, these seven sins can be overcome with seven corresponding virtues, which are humility, charity, chastity, gratitude, temperance, patience, and diligence. And a small donation would help. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Wait before we close that little gift box on your hand. <laughs> okay. Hey, we would love to have you contribute to the off-ramp if you have a question you'd like one of us to answer. We have people who regularly give us uh, questions and answers to say, hey, try this on Marsha or try this on Bob. We welcome that. We invite you to come to our website. Theofframp.show. And go to? Contact us. And just leave your information there including your name, the question, and the answer, and where you got the answer from. We also would like to know where you are listening to us from. That's always a very important. It's, yes, it is to us. We have uh, people in all sorts of weird places around the world, don't we, Bob? Yeah, very fortunate. So yeah. uh, we hope you are enjoying hearing this wherever you are hearing this. We also encourage you to go to your local library if you want to learn more things. We do this for our Cedarburg Public Library as one of our volunteer efforts. Oh, and one more question on coinage, Marsh. <laughs> All right. Why has the nickel always been misnamed? The nickel. Because it's not made of nickel. Yeah, it's always been something else. From its beginnings in 1866, its composition was always something like 75% copper and 25% nickel. So the only exceptions were during World War II when they made things out of lead. Remember lead pennies yeah, and all that yeah, stuff from yeah. 1942 to 46? Well, I'll be jiggered. So give me a nickel. It's not really a nickel. All right. Who was the first president to travel more frequently outside the United States than anybody else? I'll bet it was somebody who was running away from trouble, Richard Nixon. (laughs) No? China, here I come. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was the one who was the most immobile. Oh, no kidding. FDR. Yeah, he made 24 trips out of the United States during his presidency. And that was the first president to really travel. Yes, 24 trips he made. Outside of the country during his presidency. That's remarkable. It is. Think of how difficult that must have been. I mean, for everybody involved, but for him, it's like, oh, I'd just rather. Everything was a major deal. Wow. That's a great statistic. The first president to really travel that far in his presidency. Regularly, yeah. Huh. 
was FDR. And he also traveled all over the country. You'll see pictures of him in Yellowstone and places like that. I mean, he was traveling by train and plane. And then all that time, the press was helping him hide his disability. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The man won the war from a wheelchair. And he wore leg braces sometimes yeah. in the early days. Amazing, amazing things. He was an amazing man. Yeah. All right. Okay, Marcia. <laughs> when pirates captured cargo ships on the seas, the thefts caused shipping companies thousands of dollars. In what other way did piracy hurt companies? We're talking about the old days now, 1740s, 1730s, 1600s. Besides taking their cargo, what were the other ways yeah, they how, hurt? How other ways did it hurt shipping companies? Well, what other way is there? I it don't... drove their insurance rates up. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> really? In 1747, marine insurance companies in London charged 11% of a ship's cargo wow. and replacement costs if the vessels were going from New England to Madeira. The insurance companies charged 14% if the ship was going to Jamaica, and if it was going to Santo Domingo, they would add on 25%. So they knew where the most dangerous places were. You want us to ensure that's going to cost you more because the pirates out there. Yeah. Even three, four hundred years ago. Okay, Marcia, another old, old question. <laughs> where was the ancient city of Babylon located? What country today? Ah, country is... today. It's uh, it's not Africa, huh? No, it's not Africa. Okay, then it's the Middle East. That's right. I'll, I'll give you two clues. Okay. All right. It's in what they call the Fertile Crescent, uh-huh. between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh. What country <laughs> would these be in, Marcia? Well, uh, Iraq. Iraq, that is where it was. Babylon was about 60 miles south of today's Baghdad in Iraq. Okay. It was an ancient city founded more than 4,000 years ago, and it became the center of the Mesopotamian civilization for almost 2,000 years. Uh, it was home to important scientific discoveries in uh, trigonometry, physics, and astronomy. And those ruins are still present along the east bank of the Euphrates River. So you're right. It's uh, Iraq is where the ancient city of Babylon was located. Okay. You've got a quote for us to wrap things up today, don't I you? I do. Okay. What is it? Uh, I'm going to go with a very well-known popular quote, Bob, uh, and I like it a lot. Edmund Burke, he said, It's necessary only for the good man to do nothing, for evil to triumph. That's absolutely true. That's standing by and saying nothing. That's right. That's a choice, and it's a bad one. Very All right. Good, good answer. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. And I'm Marsha. Join us again next time when we return with more trivia on The, the Off-Ramp. Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.